Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today, I have the fantastic copywriter and critical thinker, Nathan Frazier, on the podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm good, and I'm excited to be here today. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm also excited, man, because you're one of the people that I really follow my wall, and you're definitely someone who provokes thoughts. Can you guide my uh, audience and listeners a bit through your journey? Because you talk a lot about manipulation, perception, about the politics. So guide me a bit through your journey and also know a little bit of your past and what happened to you. So if you're willing to share, I think my listeners will be intrigued about you know your journey. Yeah. So I grew up in a very left-leaning family. My father is a Mexican. My mom was Chippewa, Native American, and Scottish. And so I grew up in a very multicultural environment and we were poor, spent most of our life on welfare. My dad was in and out of prison my whole life. I also grew up very uh, socialist-minded. I believed in redistribution of the wealth. I, uh, we didn't have very much growing up, and I was always very envious of the people that did. And I bought into the idea that the reason that we were poor is because other people were greedy and hoarding their money. And I kind of bought into that whole mentality growing up. Also, when I was a kid... The left wing was the question authority, question the official narrative side of the political dichotomy, I guess. Fight the power, right? Yeah, exactly. And And the right wing was the moral authoritarians. The right wing was the, let's ban this type of music. Let's ban this type of game. This is Satanism. They, they had the satanic panic when I was a kid where everything was accused of being Satanism and being accusations of Satanism were used to ban anything that went against what the conservatives wanted people to think about or look at or, or consider. And so that was kind of the way that I grew up very anti authoritarian, anti capitalist, anti censorship. And I've definitely changed my opinions on capitalism because I started my own business and I realized, wow, everything that I heard about greedy business owners. Most of it was the exact opposite of the truth, going from being someone who received tax dollars to someone who paid out the ass in tax dollars was a big wake-up call for me. But uh, as far as being anti-authoritarianism, being anti-censorship, being pro-free speech, all of those use, the question authority, all of those used to be left-wing positions. Mm But it's weird because now they've become, now it's the right wing that, or at least the crossover between conservatives and libertarians here in, here in the States where I'm at, the United States, there is a crossover between libertarian thinking and conservative thinking. And it's that group of people that are standing up for free speech. It's that group of people that are opposing censorship. It's that group of people that are saying we need to question authority. Whereas the left, which I grew up being a hardcore leftist, mm-hmm. uh, they've all embraced censorship. They've all embraced authoritarianism. They've all embraced, if you don't think like us, we're going to label you with these, you know, the, the modern day equivalent of being a Satanist, which is a fascist or a, a racist or whatever. It's the left that has adopted 
authoritarian smears of character to beat people into submission, to stop people from disagreeing. And so over the last 10 years or so, I've had a a very rude awakening to the fact that I am no longer a leftist. I still believe in some of the core values. I believe that gay people should have the same rights as straight people. I believe that black people should have the the same rights as white people. I believe in equality under the law. But as far as a lot of the cultural things have gone for the left, I feel like I can't really identify as a leftist anymore. And it's, it's been kind of a, a disheartening thing. And I rag on leftists a lot because I feel like I've been betrayed by them. And I feel like the values that they used to uphold have been completely dropped by that side of the political aisle and oddly been picked up by the other side, which I mean, it might just be a shifting of the pendulum. I'm not sure, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's weird. I feel politically homeless now. <laughs> and I think a lot of people, I used to do hip hop for 16 years. I did sociology, which is kind of the hornet nest of like the radical left increasingly during the 90s i gave workshops to minorities i lived in muslim neighborhoods for 16 years and i used to also used to be extreme left and i was even like communist and thought like it was a great idea but my things of being pro enhancing opportunities for people against war all these things haven't changed it seems that what the left used to stand for has shifted increasingly from the 90s and that is where we get a little bit in the juicy stuff that i know you also know a lot about do these things happen organically? And is it the zeitgeist, let's say, or is there social engineering going on that makes this happen? I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a Mm. little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. One of the things to, you brought up hip hop. My first business actually was an underground hip hop record label. And that was when I first kind of, we started making money and I was like, whoa, 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 we pay a lot in taxes. (laughs) Hip hop, especially back in the, in the nineties, the eighties and the nineties, it was, it was predominantly left-wing, but there was a huge sense of unity. It was, we're all in this together. You'd go to a hip hop concert and there'd be black people and white people and people of all different backgrounds, all coming together to have a good time, all viewing each other as equal, all viewing each other as part of the culture. And now left-wing has has left the idea of unity and it's all become about identity and it's become about dividing people down to the very smallest group. So it's not even just black versus white, it's black males versus black females versus transgender females versus disabled black transgender females. And the more you can divide people down, the more oppression medals that you can hang around your neck, the more relevant your opinion should be in social dialogue, it seems. Uh, if you're a straight, cisgendered white male, your opinion doesn't matter. If you're a transgender, disabled, uh, black female. Yeah, that's uh, the intersectionalism where the revolution is eating itself by keep on dividing in smaller and smaller boxes. And then it won't be me. It won't be me. And it keep on pushing the boundaries of the small identities that are not acknowledged. I think that part of it is is organic because as human beings, we love to play the victim. We love to blame other people for when things don't go right in our life. It's a lot easier to point the finger at someone else and say, It's your fault that I didn't have the life that I wanted or I expected. So that's just part of human nature. But there's also definitely a a mentality of the people on the outside that realize, hey, it's easy 
to use these, to exploit these fundamental parts of human nature. As a marketer, one of the things that I do in all of my marketing is I, one of the first questions is, who does your target audience blame for their lack of success? So if they're fat, who do they blame for them being fat? Mm-hmm. Do, they blame the, do they blame the sugar companies? Do they blame the fast food companies? Do they blame the FDA? Do they blame the corn syrup? Who do they blame? And then a great way to get them on my side is to say, hey, you're right. The corn industry is subsidized and they put corn in all of your food and corn is a filler food. Corn is used to fatten up animals before the slaughter. And it's in almost everything that you eat, corn meal, corn syrup, it's everywhere. And now that you realize that I'm on your side, now that I'm helping you throw rocks at your enemy, let me show you the way to get the solution that you want. And so that same thing translates over into identity politics. You're right. It's not your fault. It's white people's fault, or it's men's fault, or it's systemic oppression's fault. And all of these examples of how the white person holds you down or how men hold you down or how cisgendered people hold you down. And now that we've got you believing that we're on your side, here's the solution. We're going to pass this legislation. We're going to pass this kind of law. We're going to go after and create this type of societal change. So it's both. It's grassroots. It's the natural flaws that we have as human beings, but it's also people who realize that understand the marketing and the, I guess, the intersection of marketing and politics, and they use and exploit our human nature against us in a lot of these cases, I believe. Yeah. One thing that makes me choose more sometimes for the stance of people more on the right or on the conservative right is because I use the principle that also Voltaire talked about. If you want to see who the power has, look at who you're not allowed to criticize. So when I talk about freedom of speech, it's freedom of speech for everyone, even my biggest opponent. And if the left would be silenced, I would be saying, you know, from the left's perspective, like, hey, you know, the right should stop censoring the left. It seems more and more now in identity politics that it's basically an ideological preference that applies to people who follow their ideology and not a principle that applies on all sides of the spectrum. And that's the thing that I blame, especially people on the left, that they are cherry picking their stances and opinions. Same thing ever, for instance, I had a presentation in Belgium about culture Marxism. And they said, we want a female president because it's all about fighting the patriarchy, right? And then I showed a picture of Marie Le Pen, the French female candidate for the extreme rights in France. It's like, no, 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 not that one. And then I said, see, so it's not about gender. It's actually more about ideology than about gender. So there still is an ideological preference in it instead of like principles. Yeah. So we have the same thing over here, it's we have to listen to black voices, except not that black voice. So when Kanye says he supports <laughs> Trump, oh, Kanye's mentally ill and he needs to be locked up. When 50 Cent says, uh, I'd rather have Trump's tax plan than Joe Biden's tax plan, mm-hmm. it's shut up and stay in your lane. There was a lot of rappers, Little Uzi Pump. There was like four or five pretty predominant rap- rappers who came out right before the election and said, hey, I'm voting for Trump. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Joe Biden's taxes. And they were immediately attacked by the left. The same people that say, you have to support and listen to black people until they say something that doesn't go along with what you want them to say. And so it's kind of weird. But I don't want to pretend like the right gets a pass on this because Mm -hmm. the right has the same things. The right is more than happy to promote someone like Candace Owens, who says what, what they agree with. And they're great. They're great to give a platform to someone like her, but then 
I guess the difference is the right is more willing to debate their ideas. They feel like, hey, if we have an honest conversation, I can win out. Whereas the left is not willing to debate. They just say, hey, you're a Nazi and I'm not, it's, you're not even worth talking to. But it hasn't always been that way. Like I said, back when we were kids, we had the satanic panic and the right wings were the ones, the right wingers were the ones that were censoring everybody. So the pendulum kind of shifts back and forth and I fall on whatever the issue is. I tend to fall on the side that is promoting freedom, free expression, free speech. And right now it seems to be the right is more concerned with that stuff. And so I'll agree with them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with the right in general or that I consider myself to be a right wing person because I've lived through when, when, when it was the time when the right was doing all of this stuff. So I know that they're just as capable and just as guilty of it, depending on how the situation ends up. Yeah, it's kind of like a pendulum of extremes and any extreme taken to a certain level can become very damaging. The point is that I love to have different perspectives and then you see things from different sides and you're standing in the middle with a white flag. And what happens when the left and the right is in trenches, they're shooting at you the most because you're in the middle with the white flag and you're actually trying to bring them together while they're digging their hole deeper in the trenches and just shooting each other. It's also something that I blame the right to say like, hey, all the left is a victim. But then their story is like, we're a victim of the left. And then just nothing changes. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, it's a great analogy. When you are someone like me, probably like you, and you're kind of in the middle and you're like, hey, I'm on the side of common sense. And whether you're being common sense or not doesn't really matter to me as far as your political sides you will catch fire from both sides. So rather than just having to watch your back on one area, you're having to watch your back on both sides. Yeah, and what really surprises me, and we will see what the outcome is of the U.S. elections, but what really boggles my mind is that when I see people being removed from social media platforms, they are almost entirely on the right or conservative. When I see Donald Trump now making fraud uh, accusations, we will see if they're valid enough and true or enough. But when this would happen, even if it would be in Biden's case, you know, and Trump would be like accused of fraud, I just want to make sure that it's fair elections. Not, oh man, when my candidate wins, then ignore it, then there can be fraud. And when there isn't, you know, th that's a very dangerous precedent to have. And when I see a lot of people like, no, 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 our candidate won, so we don't want to investigate. I think that's a crazy stance to have because you just want to make sure that the process is fair. Well, the last four years, we had Russiagate, 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 Russian interference, Russian bots, Russian trolls. It was four years of it. And those accusations were, it ended up, at least as far as the government investigations were concerned, it ended up being that there was no, there was no fire behind that smoke. But nobody was ever kicked off of social media for making those accusations. Nobody was ever fact-checked for making those accusations. In this election, I think, and, and it might be my own bias, but it looks like there's a lot of suspicious stuff. The fact that Trump won 18 of the 19 Bellwether Bell counties, the fact that he won all three of the Bellwether states, and, and basically those are historically counties and states that when they vote one way, the rest of the country also votes that way. They're indicators. He won 18 of 19 of the counties and all three of the states. The fact that you would see 12 people show up for a Biden event and you would see 10 And a tumbleweed, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a tumbleweed. And then you would see tens of thousands of people show up for Trump events, the enthusiasm gap, and then the all the different weird stuff going on with the voting where they boarded up the windows so people couldn't watch them count the votes. They kicked out conservative vote watchers. They kicked everybody out and said, we're done for the night and then snuck back in and started counting votes again while nobody was there to watch them. All of this stuff is suspicious. There's more credibility to these accusations than the entire investigation that was based off of the Still dossier against Trump and Russia collusion. There's way more evidence of fraud in this election than there was in the last one. Yet we were allowed to hear about fraud from the last one for the last four years. It even went to impeachment. Mm -hmm. And we're not even allowed to talk about the suspicions of fraud in this one. So again, it's one of those giant double standards that at least for me, and, I, and I'm not really like a Trump guy. I'm not a MAGA guy. I'm very skeptical of all political power. But just looking at it again from kind of sitting in the center, I got to hear four years of baseless allegations of Russia collusion. Why can't we have a little bit of investigation into all of these kind of red flags that are popping up about this election. Yeah, and it's also so polarizing. I remember back then, and you can look up, uh, I call her Hillary Kiltons <laughs> instead <laughs> of Hillary Kil <laughs> Clinton, that people say, I don't like Hillary. Also, you're pro-Trump. So it almost seems like, you know, like, yeah, men also have issues. Oh, so you're anti-feminist. So it doesn't mean that I have a stance that the opposite stance is like, right? And it seems that it's so polarizing that it's one side or the other. I also think that a lot of, Thing that Biden ran on was I'm not Trump <laughs> and I'm anti-Trump. That's also something that I think is a bit of a pity in the Democrats that it's more like anti-something than pro-something. Well, we have this problem and I don't know if it's a global issue, but definitely here in America, the media, they're all for-profit organizations. They're all, they sell ad space. They have to keep viewers tuned in. And so it's in their best interest to side with the audience, whether the audience is right or wrong, to tell the audience that they're right. If I'm a left-wing person and I tune in to MSNBC and they paint Trump favorably and they call into question my worldview, I'm probably not going to tune back into MSNBC the next day. If I'm a right-wing, we just saw this recently with, with Fox News. Fox News has been distancing themselves from Trump's allegations. And a lot of their viewers have been like, oh, well, F Fox News. I'm not going to watch Fox News anymore. And so they lost, by not agreeing with the audience, they lost a lot of their audience. And if you're a for-profit corporation, that's something that you can't do. You can't afford, you can't afford to tell the truth if it's going to mean losing part of your viewership. And so we have right now in this country, and, and I'm assuming it's probably similar in other parts of the world, we have a, a media comp industrial complex, basically, where they everybody that listens to or sees one side of the news has a cartoonish supervillain view of the other side. And then the other side has that same cartoonish supervillain view of that side. And so you have people that watch the left-wing media. All they ever hear about is how great left-wingers are and how evil right-wingers are. Then you watch the right-wing media, and all they ever hear about is how great right-wingers are and how evil left-wingers are. And it makes good business sense to run your media corporation that way. But it also leads to this huge divide where people are living in completely different realities now 
where everybody on the left is Antifa from the right-wing point of view, and everybody on the right is a fascist from the left-wing point of view. And we have this situation where the majority of the country now looks at the other half of, or I guess the majority of one half of the country looks at the majority of the other half of the country and sees them as inhuman monsters. And it's both ways. It's both sides saying, I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. And neither one of them are seeing the nuance. Neither one of them are seeing the actual positions of the other side. And it's quite dangerous. And I sometimes think it's intentional. Sometimes I think maybe well, it's that just is com- something that I want to, I, I don't know what the instrument is like, woo, you have these spooky music and stuff and these questions uh, that I want to ask. <laughs> Do they really serve that audience the most? Or when you take a look at a book, Surveillance Capitalism, Social Dilemma, when you see it's more and more about selling perception, is it really about serving their audience mostly, or is it mostly about serving certain people who have a big stake in managing perception of the audience, not necessarily to create profit from that audience? That is the million dollar question. So I think yes to both. I think mm-hmm. number one, they have to they have to side with the audience to keep the audience coming back. But the reason they keep the audience coming back. To be honest, when you buy a media corporation, it's not for the money. It's not for the profit. It's for the influence. It's for the control. When I create media, that's what I do is I create media for my clients. I create blog posts. I create sales pages. I create opt-in offers. The reason that I create media is to meet the audience where they're at, agree with the audience, and then direct them where I want them to go. Yes, you're a victim of the high fructose corn syrup industry. Yes, you're a victim of the sugar lobbyists. Here's where you should go. Now that now that you see that I'm on your side, let me show you the path to victory. That's what I think that the most of the media is, is they're there to number one, grab people and pull them in by agreeing with them, but then to show them this is where we want you to go. So it's about influence. It's about getting people to where they want them to, them to go. Ultimately, and this is this is where I'm torn as an mm-hmm. entrepreneur, I do business globally. So I have clients all over the world. I have customers all over the world. And one of the things that just drives me insane is the different tax laws all over the world and the different regulatory rules all over the world. The European Union is horrible for writing sales copy. There's a lot of stuff that I can get away with in America writing sales copy that I'm not allowed to in the European Union because that attacks people based off of their gender, or that makes people feel bad about the, their weight, or you can't write an ad for a dishwasher and aim it at, at women, even though women are the ones that usually make the buying decision. That's sexist of you to assume it's so you're not allowed to write your ads that way. And it's infuriating to me as a business owner to have to know all of these different regulations, all of these different rules, and all of these different tax rules throughout the world. So, personally, as a business owner, I would prefer one standardized set of rules for the whole world. But then as a, I guess, maybe a quasi-nationalist, as somebody who enjoys national sovereignty, I don't want one set of rules for all the world. Because if I don't like the rules here, I'd like to be able to move to a country where the rules fit me better. But if we have one set of rules for the entire world, there's, that's no longer an option. And so... I think that there is, especially for the people that run the corporate media, they're international. They have 
media conglomerates in Australia, media conglomerates in Britain, media conglomerates in Canada and America and Mexico. They're international companies. They want international government. They want international rules. They want one set of rules for the entire world because it makes it do to do business. It makes it a lot easier. And so I think that they're using the media to push that, to subtly nudge people in that direction. Give up your idea of national sovereignty. Give up your ideas of nationhood and start accepting. And, and we see things like the Great Reset. We see things like the World Economic Forum pushing towards a global socialist. They call it global governments or sustainable global partnership, like these kind of fluffy terms. And a big of the battles that we see right now is between nationalism and globalism. Like, I'm also happy that I have international customers. It allows me a lot of freedom. But I see a move towards more and more power towards big power structures, big government, big tech, big pharma, big media, these big institutions. And the sovereignty of the individual or the nations is not there anymore. And when it comes to checks and balances, also when you look at the states in the United States, it is a good counterweight. But when everything is global all around the world, it makes you feel powerless. And they, there's the tendency, especially when it comes to like communism or having a department of health that's global, department of education that's global, that it becomes a kind of nanny state that's going to ideologically survey, monitor every aspect of your life. And you don't have a lot of freedom anymore. You're just allowed within that spectrum of freedom to do what you do. And that self-determinancy, that way to figure things out, which are value, is taken away from you. And I think that's a very dangerous tendency. And you've seen this in history that that leads to authoritarianism, maybe even to a backlash of extreme far-right nationalism because people feel hopeless and they want again to have a counter-movement. So I see in the zeitgeist a lot of dangerous tendencies that when you look in history, there's a dangerous cocktail of like the spirit of the times at the moment. How do you look at this? The two countering ideologies are individualism versus collectivism. And most people want individual freedom for themselves. Even a lot of the collectivists want individual freedom for themselves and don't really want individual freedom for others. They're afraid of what freedom means for their neighbors. They're afraid of what freedom means for their ideological opponents, but they want freedom for themselves. And I think that on the right wing, you, at least right now, you have a lot of people that understand, hey, if, I, if I'm going to be free, my neighbor has to be free. I can't be any freer than my neighbor is. That also used to be a very big feeling amongst the left when we were kids, at least here in America. It used to be, if one of us isn't free, none of us are free. That isn't really so much of a prominent idea. But what it comes down to, I think, though, is at the global level, at the, at the top tiers of society as far as influence and power goes, these people way at the top, they are managerial minded. They look at us and they, they think that our freedom is leading to the destruction of their planet. They look at us and think that we're, you know, us being free. Again, say you were Mark Zuckerberg or you were the guy that runs Twitter. It's an international company, which means that some countries have hate speech laws and other countries don't. And to try and program the algorithm to only show free speech in certain areas. And when people interact with, with, when one person from one country interacts with another person from another country, it might be perfectly fine for them to say something in their country, but it might be completely forbidden in the other country. What's the best thing to do if you're in that position? Well, 
let's just take the strictest rules and apply it across the board so that we don't have to have all these complicated algorithms, all these complicated rule sets. We don't run, you know, risking offending this nation in order to appease this nation. We just say, hey, if country A says this isn't allowed, then it's not allowed in country B, C, or D either. But why so, have these companies that still thrive on capitalism? You can look during this is recorded during the COVID uh, open the things brackets uh, crisis. They made one trillion dollars, so even Facebook went up a lot. So they thrive out of capitalism, but ideologically they push a woke agenda. How do you rhyme this with each other? I personally think. Have you ever read Atlas Shrugged? It's in my bookcase, but I haven't read it yet. It's John Galt, okay. right? Yeah. There's real-world examples of this as well. So in Nazi Germany, they did a lot of... It was a free market still, but only certain people were allowed to operate. You were allowed to own your business, but the state told you how to operate your business. And the state picked who was going to be the big guys in the industry and who was going to basically be run out of the industry. And a lot of companies like IG Farben, I think is the name of the company. IG Farben and... Volkswagen and started. A lot of those companies, they were capitalist companies, but then when they saw the national socialism coming in, they said, well, hey, they made deals with the government. They said, well, somebody's got to provide the cars, so it might as well be us. Somebody's got to provide the rubber, it might as well be us. Some of us, somebody's got to provide the medicine, so it might as well be us. So the biggest companies, when they start seeing this shift happen, they say, well, this has this is a necessity. It has to be provided. It might as well be us. So if we're going to go to this quasi-socialist, half-socialist mixed economy with half-capitalism, mm -hmm. basically fascism, somebody's going to have to provide this stuff. So it might as well be us. So let's make sure that we're on the good side of the people in charge so that we can say, hey, eliminate all of our competition. And when you're coming up as an entrepreneur, the free market is the greatest thing because it allows you to compete. It allows you to provide a better product. It allows you to raise up and succeed. But once you're at the top, the free market is the greatest threat to your continued success because somebody else can now do what you did and they can come up and they can displace you. So as you're rising, free market capitalism is great. Once you hit the top, free market capitalism is a threat. And you have to, a lot of these companies that are quote-unquote capitalist and, and gained all their power through capitalism, once they get to the top, capitalism means that somebody can come in and displace them. And so then capitalism is a bad thing. And so then a lot of these com companies that we think of as capitalists, they start employing anti-capitalist ideals because it's a matter of, I'm at the top, I want to shut the door behind me so that nobody else can come in and take my place. And that is partly what I call corporate communism, because when you take a look at the, the top of the pyramid, when you're on the top of the pyramid and you can steer behavior, you can control it because I see more and more behavior and people being treated like a cookie and they can market it first with their perception, then maybe with their body, track and trace, etc. And you can steer their perception. You're on the top of the pyramid and you can enhance your power and control. So the more and more it becomes a kind of authoritarian, hierarchical, communist corporate communist kind of structure. So people always think like capitalism and communism is so far away from each other, but we kind of get into a blend right now where you have these big companies and big pharma, big media, they're eating up all the other companies. They're very intertwined and interlinked. And when they can have control of the perception and the behavior of people, because when people define situations as real, aka perceptions, they are real in their consequences and their consequences reinforce a certain perception. 
So then you come to a lot of ability right now, a lot more than 100 years ago, to socially engineer society to serve your own self-interest. So this is one of the moral struggles that I deal with inside of myself is as a marketer, I see how easy people are to manipulate. Mm -hmm. I see how easy people are to lead astray. And I think that a lot of the people that become like the multi-billionaires of the world or the trillionaires of the world, the people that end up owning, you know, six or 7% of the world wealth or 10 or 15% of the world wealth, they see this too. And they probably are of the mind that, hey, people are sheep. They're begging to be led. They refuse to control themselves. So they're begging for someone else to come in and control them. And obviously I'm smarter than all of these idiots. So if not me, then who? So why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't me and my 15 buddies get together? You know, I, I run the telephone company and this person runs the app store and this person runs the pharmaceutical company and this person runs the television production company. Why shouldn't we get together and meet and talk about how we're going to use our power and influence to continue our control over the planet? And part of me, having led companies, having been a team leader inside of other companies, having been in charge of the influence department of some of the biggest companies in the world, having been in that position, I can kind of relate with where they're coming from. The thing that stops me is my background, where I came from. The fact that I came from almost nothing. The fact that I came from welfare and food stamps and being homeless. And the free market is what gave me the ability to rise up and not live in that kind of condition anymore. Having come from where I come from and the free market being what, and freedom being what allowed me to get to where I'm at now, I don't want to take that away from other people. But at the same time, I can understand the people that are in these positions. Even though I don't agree with them, I can see where they're coming from and I can see why they see things the way that they do. Because if we're being completely honest, the majority of people are stupid and they want to be led. Freedom means responsibility. And most people would rather be secure than have freedom and have to bear with or, or to deal with the responsibility that comes along with it. Yeah. Understanding doesn't mean approving it. It means I understand how it works. One thing that I notice is that the higher up you go, the status hierarchy or big uh, corporations, I notice a sincere lack of empathy. Maybe that doesn't try very high up the status or hierarchy ladder. And I see a lot of narcissism or psychopathic behavior in people who have a lot of power. That's what I notice when I see them speak. You can look at Bill Gates, look at an interview, and he's talking about a crisis. And I see him smirking. I mean, I could never smirk about this. I have my own opinion about what's going on. But physiologically, I'm not the most empathic person. I'm an INTJ. And that's a whole other episode about personality types. But I could never react that way. When I see a video where like, <laughs> the second wave, <laughs> that will get that attention. How can you laugh with this? How, how can you act this way? So that is where we get a little bit maybe in the juicy part is, a lot of people think I'm a conspiracy theorist or the fact that I think everything is a conspiracy. No, I'm a critical thinker and I like to look at different angles. Why do so many people find it so difficult to think that there are some conspiracies in history when we've seen JFK, we have doubts about 9-11, a war in Iraq based on weapons of mass destruction that were not there, the massive papers of WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden, stuff is coming out. 
that some people do stuff for their own agenda. But despite that, still people find it very difficult to believe that power institutions, powerful people will manipulate things for their own agenda. Knowing your history about all the literature that you read and history, why do people find it so difficult to believe it? And what's your stance towards conspiracy theories in general? I'm 50-50 on conspiracy theories. I think that obviously people in power conspire. I'm a marketer. That's what I do for a living is I conspire with business owners to help them get a bigger section of the marketplace. There's two reasons why most, most people reject conspiracy theories. Number one, there's a lot of garbage conspiracy theories. There's a lot of birds aren't real conspiracy theories and flat earth or uh, hollow earth or hologram, whatever. There's a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the moon is a hologram. There's a lot of conspiracy theories mm -hmm. that are like, oh, come on, you got to be very dim-witted to believe that. And, and it makes it easy to discredit all of the other conspiracy theories. If you say, hey, there's something suspicious about Building 7. Oh, you're probably one of those people that doesn't think birds are real. It's really easy to discredit conspiracy theorists that way because there's been a lot of like honeypot type stuff to muddy the waters. But also, I mean, who wants to believe that rich and powerful people are willing to kill off 80% of the population in order to maintain their control. Who wants to believe that? I don't want to believe that. Who wants to believe that the world's most powerful people meet in areas of the woods and sacrifice children to their gods? I don't want to believe that. Why would I want to believe that? So there's part of it that a lot of conspiracy theories are silly and maybe 80% of them are completely ridiculous and it makes it hard to take the other 20% serious even though they might have some truth to them but then there's also the fact that I don't want to believe this stuff about our leaders I don't want to believe that our leaders are involved with pedophile child sacrificing rings I don't want to believe that our leaders are working towards a global authoritarian government that's going to com completely eradicate human free will for the rest of eternity. I don't want to believe this stuff. So it's easy for me to understand why other people don't want to believe it either. It's also these extremes about the reptilians, pedophilia, and these things that take it to an extreme. Now, when you talk about gathering in the woods, presidents gather in the woods with what is Yale or Stanford that they get together and they wear masks and they get together every year. You have the Bilderberg group who gets together every year. It's a secret meeting. You have the Davos meeting where the richest of the rich get together every year in Switzerland. So these meetings of very powerful people, it happens. What happens there with all the crazy stuff some people say, I'm not touching that. But the fact that some people who want to enhance their power on a global level say, how can we give ourselves more power? That is not a strange thing to do, I think, to ponder about because the question that I often ask is, who is involved? Who benefits from this? And are they involved in the decision-making? When those three things are intertwined, you should be very wary of when you have, are a weapon, uh, an arms dealer, and you say, how should we solve this conflict? Well, I think you should, you know, sell weapons and go to wars. Like, I don't know. I think he kind of has a stake in this conversation. Well, when I see certain people in big pharma, in the banks, in big institutions, in big tech, and they're the same ones who are taking the forefront of certain decisions to be made and they make profit power influence from it. I'm very wary, wary of that when those people are involved in the decision making. And I think that's a healthy question 
and still is a bit away from the 1%, the Illuminati, et cetera, or crazy rituals, et cetera. I'm not touching that. But the fact that they are having benefits from it and they are making the decisions when they have clearly a stake in the game, I think that's just not fair. And nowadays, when we live in this corona thing, we notice a lot that there's no democracy. All these rules are being made by big institutions. There's no say of what we want to do. And more and more power is being given to global institutions. So some people, whether they want it voluntarily or not, they're benefiting from this crisis by more power. Or as I just said earlier in this podcast, big companies, especially in tech, have made more than $1 trillion up until now in this crisis, like more money, while small businesses are being closed and Amazon and all the other big organizations are getting more uh, money. Yeah. Rand so, over. <laughs> no, yeah. But you're right, though. There's... Uh, we're watching Walmart and Amazon and Target and Home Depot, at least here in the States. Mm-hmm. We're watching these companies have 500% increases in profits this year. We're watching all of their competition be shut down and be told it's not safe to go buy shoes from a shoe store, a mom and pop shoe store with two other people in the building. But it is safe to go buy shoes from Walmart with 800 people in the building. So there's definitely financial incentives. You mentioned Bill Gates earlier. He's, he's obviously got a lot of money invest, invested in the vaccine industry. Fauci has money invested in, uh, I think he's a stakeholder in Monero, Monero I believe is the company. Um, Moderna. Moderna, yeah. And so he, Monero, that's an a alternative coin. So yeah, we're we're watching these people that are making the decisions for what we're going to have to do, and they have financial incentives to say that they would put their own financial gain aside and make a decision that would harm their finances in order to do what's best for the people of the world. I don't think that it's a stretch to think that that's not the case. People are fallible. People will sell each other. Not always, but sometimes and and very often people will sell out their neighbors for a dollar. And when it comes to people who are already super rich, it's not as much about money as it is about control, power, influence. And so we're also seeing a lot of politicians realizing that this gives them an opportunity to seize power like we've never seen before in the history of the world. And I think more so than just the transfer of wealth, the transfer of power is astounding that we've seen in the last eight, nine months. It's it's insane. If you would have told someone just two years ago, hey, two years from now, there's going to be parts of the world where you're not even allowed to leave your house to walk your dog Mm -hmm. for up to three, four months at a time, people would have never believed it. But now we believe that these these politicians and and oligarchs have the right to make these types of rules for our life and yeah money and power man it's it's a crazy motivator and it drives people to do some pretty horrific things i started reading a book the true believer which is like a great book also about mass manipulation and maybe you can shed a little bit of insight what's in the book often people mistake the norm with what's right And that's what we've seen right now, or it becomes familiar and it becomes the default thing to do. When we've seen our society, what we do right now, we're even doing things that now we think is normal. And a month ago, we thought it was crazy. So that sometimes shows a lot of advantage as human beings, how adaptable we are. But it also shows in a negative way, like how adaptable we are. And when I see how society is developing right now and what the future is, I see it more being pushed towards 
living online, virtual reality, transhumanism, uh, technology becoming a part of our bodies, which is kind of like what I said, treating people as cookies. It's kind of what we do as marketeers. I also help people with it. So I see the benefit of it. But how do you see humanity? Because this is the podcast rants about humanity developing with all the polarization on social media, the increasing transhumanism and impact of technology on our lives. Do you see a counter revolution happening on other movement happening or what are your insights about it? I think that the fundamental flaw in the plans of these people that are trying to achieve a global empire and they're using COVID-19 to get their goals kind of rammed through or rushed through. I think that the fatal flaw of their plans is the human spirit. I think that during times of great fear, people will accept these things, but after a while, people will start to question them. After a while, people will start to say, hey, this is ridiculous. It always happens. Every authoritarian regime grasps too much, reaches too far, and eventually falls apart. We've seen it time and time again. It happens over and over again. If they're able to accomplish it on a global scale, I don't see it lasting very long. I don't see it lasting more than maybe a decade or two decades. The variable to throw in that hasn't existed before is the transhumanism stuff. Gosh, they're talking about video games that can direct Neuralink Elon Musk is talking mm-hmm. about neural links directly connecting humans to computers. I personally would never trust doing that, especially with hacking and all of the problems with viruses and stuff like that. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't hook a computer up to my brain. I think there are people that will. I think that we're going to see a division. And I think ultimately the human spirit will win out. But maybe that's just my normalcy bias. Maybe that's just my optimism. Ultimately, though, I don't see. Unless they can find a way to completely eliminate, human beings have a drive to be individuals. Human beings have a drive to feel like they're in control of their own lives, even if they're not. Human beings want to feel like they are special, that they're unique, that they are the ones in control. And authoritarianism is based off of convincing people to sacrifice that in order to have security. And once that security is proven to be a false sense of security, it always falls apart. And people always resort back to, I want my individual control over my life back. So unless they can get rid of that desire that seems to be a part of our human nature, I don't think their goals, the the control freaks goals, will ever last longer than a few generations, even on, on a global level. And I think that there will always be a resistance of people that are just saying, hey, it's not worth it to me to go along with your plans. What if they make, and it, it reminds me of the image, the black and the, and the red pill and the matrix, right? And sometimes when you know what the red pill looks like, like, you know, anarchy in a horrible world, imagine in the future that children are growing into the matrix. Matrix be a, a comparison with being plugged in technology, surveillance, monitoring for your own health and comfort, etc. What if you have that red pill and a blue pill but when you take that blue pill yeah you have to go to nature again very basic living you can't use all these great technologies have this endless options that ease of living maybe it will be the same thing for those people like oh my god are you going to go and plug yourself on the matrix with these swarming things chasing you in this desolate landscape even though it's a fake world it's a lot more safe and comfortable and secure than me just going back to the basics and being deprived of so many things. 
I don't know. I think that there's, and this is just me saying from my own experience with humans and my own experience in my own life, I think that there's a desire to push back. Once the people that want to control go too far, there's always going to be people that push back. And I don't see it. And, and maybe this is my bias from living in America where we have a very rebellious spirit and I haven't lived in other countries that mm-hmm. before we got on the call, we were talking about places that other places in the world where people are very docile, people mm-hmm. are afraid to stand up. Maybe I have a bias to think that the way to think the way that I do, but this is what I've learned in marketing. It's worth it to push people, to nudge people who are already about to buy. It's worth it to market to people who are already about to buy. But there's some people who are just not part of your target market and you can manipulate them and you can threaten them and you can use all the dark psychology and you can eventually get them to buy, but it's not going to be worth it. It's, there's going to be a, a diminishing return on that investment. And so it only makes sense to market to the people that are willing to buy. And when it comes to authoritarianism, there's always going to be a large part of people that just aren't willing to buy. There's going to be people that are, that'll gladly put on the mask and social distance and stay in their home for weeks at a time and live in fear and go get the vaccine and do, and get the microchip and get the freedom pass and do all that. There's going to be a part of the market that's willing to do that. And those people are the ones that you spend all your marketing dollars trying to get to and trying to convince. But there's also going to be a large part of the market that's just not going to do it. And you can influence, you can persuade, you can threaten, you can make life miserable for them if they don't buy in. But eventually, it's going to cost more to get them to buy in than you're going to be able to profit off of them in the back end. And so as a marketer, it just makes sense to me that there's just always going to be a section of the market that's not going to buy authoritarianism. And eventually, they're going to spend too much trying to... It's like that old saying about the Soviet Union. The workers worked until the people forcing them to ran out of bullets. Eventually, they'll run out of bullets. What is the antidote against globalism? Or what is the antidote of technology going too far? I don't really know what too far means. For me, it's different than what it is for other people. Also, I don't know what, as far as globalism goes, I mean, if there was a global government that reflected the values of the Magna Carta and the United States Constitution, I don't know if I'd be opposed to that. Mm -hmm. If it was a global government that reflected the values of the Chinese Communist government, then I definitely would have, or, or some like extreme Islamic government, then I would have a, a problem with it. So I don't know. I mean, what happens in the future, I, I really can't tell. All I can tell is there is, it seems like it's programmed within us. There is a check against this stuff. There is part of our nature that says, hey, I want to be in control of my life. I'm willing to work and cooperate with other people, but I am not willing to be stomped on. And well, I when you look at it in an archetypical way, often you see this in black, black, bluebeards, you see this in the Garden of Eden, you see this with the Tower of Babel. That often you see that curiosity can become a vice because we always want to find the limit of what we can do, what we can achieve. And I'm a bit of a pessimist or a bit of a Hegelian this way that oftentimes it has to be a lot of chaos or destruction, or things have to go too far a certain way before there's a flood and it corrects itself, even though we're maybe a bit the canaries in a 
gold and in the gold mine or coal mine that see what's coming. It's like Cassandra in the Trojan War. She could see the future, but nobody was believing her. And then it had to manifest. So it's almost a pity that it has to go so far or so much chaos and destruction for them to build a better future again. How do you look at this? I agree. That's one of the problems of being smart is you can always see what's coming and nobody ever wants to listen to you. I agree with you, but I also historically it does happen. It does eventually get to the point where people say, oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have been locking Jews up in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have been burning people at the stakes and calling them witches. Eventually, people say, oh, maybe we shouldn't have just been calling everybody a Nazi and running up and punching them for wearing a MAGA hat. After the manipulation starts to wear off, there are some people that just through their whole lives, they just continue to go back to the same type of manipulators, whether it's their personal relationships, whether it's the relationship with their government. There are some people that continue to go back to the same self-destructive patterns over and over and over again, but most people learn. And if you fool them, eventually they're going to wake up to it. Not everybody. And sometimes it's not until it blows up in our face that we listen to the people that were you know, sounding the warning calls. Yeah, how many times do we have to see that book burning is a sign of authoritarianism? We've seen this in the Inquisition, in Nazi Germany, in the Soviet Union, in so many things that you prohibit certain things and it becomes down to we know what's right and wrong and we're going to decide what's right, no matter on the ideological spectrum. And that's also why I love free speech so much because it's a fluid spectrum, constructive dialogue. And then you find out your own truth. And I always think it's very dangerous fact-checking. We are right. We have the ultimate truth. I think that's a very dangerous tendency. And when you look at history, that sets the precedence of single people deciding what's wrong or what's, what's wrong. That's also what I noticed about communism, right? Everybody thinks communism, it just hasn't been executed well enough, which means if I would be in power and if I would decide what's right or wrong, then communism would work. And then it ends up again with accumulated power at the top or a cult of the individual is going to decide what's right or wrong and play God. So, Well, we see this thing, and I'll be as quick as I can about this. We see this pendulum that swings back and forth. At the dawn of the internet, the mainstream media had a very powerful grip on reality for most people. And the internet sprung up and social media sprung up and all of a sudden, oh, I can put my news out there. I can report from the ground. And that led to a lot of cable cutting. It led to a lot of people unsubscribing from the cable companies. It led to a lot of people choosing alternative media. And then those companies that provided that for us became very powerful and they realized the influence that they had And then they started doing the same thing. Facebook and Twitter and YouTube started saying, okay, we're going to censor. We're going to choose what people can hear. We're going to choose what narratives are allowed to get out and which narratives aren't. And then when that started happening, then we saw things like Gab and Parler and MeWe and Minds. And now these alternatives are springing up. What I think happens is some people are happy to continue watching cable and get their, their worldview from there. Some people are happy to continue watching censored YouTube and get their worldview from there. And a lot of other people are saying, you know what, we want to go to a more free area. And if the internet itself starts to clamp down, then people will come up with an alternative to the internet. We'll see more decentralized versions of the internet start to appear. We'll see peer-to-peer versions of the internet start to appear, kind of like Bitcoin is, but for the internet itself. And I think that 
it's just a pendulum that goes back and forth. We swing between freedom and authoritarianism and then back to freedom and then back to authoritarianism. And we have to find this healthy balance because as a society, we want to respect the rights of individuals, but we also live in the same neighborhood as the guy wanting to blast his music until three in the morning. So Mm -hmm. he has his rights on his property, but once his rights start affecting the community in a negative way, then we have to come together and say, hey, we're going to have to be a little bit authoritarian. Your rights, you have your rights, but once you start infringing on the rights of others. And so we, as a society, as human beings, we're always trying to find that balance between self-ownership and being part of a community. And sometimes we go too far to one end and sometimes we go too far to the other end. I would prefer to go too far to the individuality end personally, but I understand the value of knowing how a community needs to function. And so I just think that at our roots, again, just going back to being a marketer, it's easy to manipulate people to get a, a quick dollar, but in the long run, it's a, a surefire way to go out of business. Selling people a garbage product that you know you, you buy it for a dollar and it's cheaply put together and it's not what they really want, but you convince them it's what they want and you sell it for $50. You can make a quick $49 doing that, but you're not going to get return customers. So When it comes to authoritarianism, yes, it's easy to sell to people that are terrified. It's easy to sell to people that are looking for security. But when it ends up that they find out, oh, I bought this $1 piece of crap and it cost me $49, they're a lot less likely to recommend it. They're a lot less likely to go and purchase it again. And so that's kind of how I feel when it comes to authoritarianism. It's easy to to sell to people, but once people realize what they bought, there's going to be a lot of people wanting a refund. Yeah, I see a lot of people being dissatisfied with social media and the censorship. And I see a move more towards other platforms or even to their websites, again, like old school and just developing their own community. Now, you have a great podcast, The Dark Arts of Marketing. What made you start the podcast? And what are some very interesting or thought-provoking things you learned from doing the podcast? So I got into marketing kind of a a weird way. Originally, I was in the conspiracy theory realm. I started reading books like Propaganda and books on controlling the masses, social engineering. That's kind of how I got into marketing is I was reading, how does the news work? How do mass movements work? How How does manipulation work? And so I had a very negative view of marketing before I got into it. And then I started a business and I started realizing, oh, marketing can be used for good. Marketing can be used for connecting the right people with the right product. But marketing can also be used by politicians. Marketing can also be used by social engineers for very horrible things. And there's a lot of there's a lot of instances where the same technology can be used. It's like a butter knife. You can use it to butter your bread and make a delicious breakfast, or you can use it to stab your neighbor. That's how marketing is. And so I've been doing this now for gosh. 15, 20 years now, I've been working in media and marketing. And I kind of get a pushback from a lot of marketers because I talk about stuff that most marketers don't want getting out or most marketers don't want to admit about the industry. What's one Um, of those things? (laughs) Well, I talk most of the time, the show is about just taking a specific part of human nature and saying, hey, this is how you can use this to connect the right people with your product and put a lot of money in your pocket, 
But this is also how politicians in the news and academia use this to manipulate people. And so I talk about different biases that people have and how to exploit those biases for profit and also how to exploit how people exploit those biases for uh, power. And I've done maybe 30 episodes so far and we've talked about things from Black Lives Matter to coronavirus, pretty much everything that's hot topics in the media. I talk about how these these current events are being used to manipulate people. And then I also talk about how the same tactics can be used in marketing campaigns. So pretty much across the board, about half of the podcast Mm -hmm. is cheered by marketers. And then the other half of the Mm -hmm. podcast episodes are usually like, hey, we're not supposed to say that out loud. That's me. That means that you're doing something well, right? What you talked about before with the awareness spectrum, I think the first step is always awareness because with awareness comes realization, it comes a choice. And I think it's good to show people what's going on so they can figure things out themselves and see what they think about certain aspects. You've also written a couple of books. So tell people a bit more about how they can get in touch with you and the great books you've written about copywriting. So I'm only going to mention the most recent book that I've written. It's called How to Write the Perfect Sales Page, Even If You're Not a Copywriter. I'm pretty expensive for my fees. I usually charge a retainer of between three and $5,000 a month. So a lot of business owners aren't... Hashtag P qualification. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of business owners aren't at the point where they can afford my services. But I did take one of my... Uh, all-time favorite templates, one of the templates that I use over and over again for writing sales pages. And I did put it in an easy-to-consume book format. You can sit down and read it in a half an hour and pump out an amazingly well-converting sales page if you use the formula in it. And that book is called How to Write the Perfect Sales Page. Even if you're not a copywriter, the podcast you can listen to over at the damnpodcast.com. So the dark arts of marketing, T H E D A M podcast.com. Awesome, man. I will drop the link down below so people can find it out on how they can order it on Amazon. What is during these crazy Corona times? What is the kind of a message you would love to give to people or a short rant about how people can not be socially engineered or a hopeful message for humanity? There's two sides of the conversation out there, and there's a lot of medical experts that are being censored right now, and there are a lot of statistics and facts that are not being allowed to be discussed because they go against what the media and the pharmaceutical companies that own the media. I think recently, 2017 is the most recent number, but mainstream news, over 70% of their advertising dollars come from pharmaceutical companies. So the evening Mm. news, Fox News, CNN, 70% of their advertising dollars come from pharmaceutical companies. So the pharmaceutical companies have a lot of pull in the way stories are reported. And if something is good for the pharmaceutical companies, it's going to get a lot of play on the mainstream media. And if something is bad for the pharmaceutical companies, If the mainstream media reports on it, it's going to mean that they're going to risk losing some of their advertising dollars. So understand the power that the pharmaceutical companies have over mainstream media and understand that there are people who are putting forth other facts and other points of view that are being censored by the mainstream media. And look at both sides of the story. Look at what the mainstream media is saying. Look at what the pharmaceutical companies are saying. But also look at what some of the doctors who are dissenting are saying. And look at at the statistics and start coming to your own decisions rather than just letting 
one side of the story be the only thing that you take in and the only thing that decides what you think about the situation. There's a lot of information out there. We live in a time, fortunately, where five corporations don't control all of the information like they did 10 or 15 years ago. And for you as a human being, in my opinion, it makes sense to listen to both sides or three sides or four sides of the story before you make your decision. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I am going to tell you to collect your own information and do a little bit of thinking. Don't just blindly trust what you hear from one source. Love it, man. You're not going to tell people what to think, but you're going to ask and invite them to think and see different perspectives. That's exactly the same thing that I want to do with this podcast. Thanks so much for being a voice of reason and common sense. Check him out, Nathan Frazier on Facebook and all the other platforms. And thanks for being a guest, man. Love it. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent over.